happy Halloween, everyone. Welcome to the Women of Jethro. This is Marielle reporting for duty. Thank you for being here. Thank you especially to the folks who've patiently waited for me to get my shit together and make some new content. Sorry, just me. We lost Amanda for now. She's fine. Look, my sister Amanda faces trauma daily as a career and she's doing much more important things. She also bought a house and is a real boss bitch. She will be back though. She literally said so on the phone earlier. I also moved and bought a new home in Florida. Yes, I am a Florida woman now. I love my home, my properties, my oasis. And I think I chose a region of Florida that is more tame as far as like general Florida mayhem goes. I have a new daughter. Her name is Dolly. She's on my desk right now. Nine pounds, curly black hair, Disney princess eyes. Yes, hi, baby. Her front paws are white, so she looks like she has socks on, or like I call them her go-go boots. Did anyone think I was talking about a human child up until I said the word paws? Okay, just wondering. Whole crew is loving it here. Dorothy uses the pool more than me. I also have rescue bunnies now. Story of their liberation is really something, but probably not something I should repeat on a public platform. That's uh, that's a dinner party story. Anyways, enough about me for now. Let's get to the show. How about some death row news and updates? Not a woman, but very current and death row related. Two years after a California Supreme Court overturned Scott Peterson's death sentence, He's finally been moved off of death row. So I'm sure as most of us know, Scott Peterson was convicted of killing his pregnant wife, Lacey, and their unborn baby, Connor. Scott was moved from San Quentin to Mule Creek State Prison, which is east of Sacramento. He had a new mugshot taken and he looks pretty good given the circumstances. Like he's 50 now, so he's got the salt and pepper beard, but his skin can make an argument for staying out of the sun to slow aging skin. Just saying, wear your SPF daily. Face, hands, neck. Those are the areas that are aged the fastest by sun damage. This is now a beauty podcast. Anyway, Scott's death sentence was overturned in August of 2020 after the state's Supreme Court found there were potential jurors who were wrongfully dismissed for saying they personally disagreed with the death penalty, but they would be willing to follow the law and impose it. I remember that jury being a hot-ass mess, namely Miss Ma'am's Strawberry Shortcake. Just yikes. A California state judge is now considering whether Scott Peterson deserves a new trial after justices stated separately that his jury may have been tainted by a biased juror. Looking at you, girl. Rochelle Nice, juror number seven, with her red hair that looked like a party city wig. She was so insufferable with her stance on his guilt and now egg on your face, sweet cheeks. I would bet money the juror in question is that lady. She conducted herself as just like an attention-starved nutcase. Next story, Taylor Renee Parker, a 29-year-old Texas woman, was on trial for the alleged murder of her pregnant friend Reagan Simmons Hancock, during which she took the unborn child and presented it as her own, giving very much Lisa Montgomery. 
Montgomery, who we've discussed before. So after receiving a 911 call from Reagan Simmons Hancock's family on October 9th, 2020, police in New Boston, Oklahoma, went to her house and discovered her dead at about 1020 a.m. Parker was arrested and charged with first degree murder and abduction. Reagan was seven and a half months into her pregnancy when the unborn baby was removed from her womb. After the alleged incident, Parker was caught speeding near DeKalb and taken into custody by a Texas state trooper. She told the officer that she had given birth on the side of the road and that the baby was not breathing after she delivered it. So to ensure the safety of both Parker and the baby, paramedics sent them to McCurtain Memorial Hospital. When Parker refused to be examined by hospital physicians, they had a reason to suspect something was wrong with her. Tragically, the hospital was unable to save the infant. According to the evidence presented in court, Reagan was attacked and wounded more than 100 times, had her skull crushed with a hammer, and then had her baby removed from the womb. Jesus. Oh, my God. In addition to being charged with capital murder, Parker faced charges of non-capital murder for the infant's death. Assistant District Attorney Kelly Crisp told the jury that Parker is an actress of the highest order who lied about being pregnant for over 10 months to keep her partner around. Crisp said that Parker pretended to be pregnant in order to get attention, that she fabricated ultrasound images, that she threw a party to find out the baby's gender, and that she even posted about her fake pregnancy on social media. Very Lisa Montgomery. After the murder, Crisp said that Parker made it seem as if she had given birth, quoting that she put Reagan's placenta down her trousers to make it look like she had given birth on the side of the road. During the trial, one of her attorneys, Jeff Harrelson, encouraged the jurors to consider all the evidence that had been presented. According to Harrelson, it's a hard situation, both factually and emotionally. The law is the lens and filter through which you are required to examine these facts. Sometimes there is neither black nor white, but rather a shade of gray. What a poet, Mr. Defense Attorney. Two years after she committed this horrific crime on October 3rd, 2022, Taylor Renee Parker was convicted of capital murder. The penalty phase of her trial is currently ongoing. This next story is from Al Jazeera, written by a very cheeky human rights lawyer, Clive Stafford Smith, and was just published September 23rd, 2022. Death in the USA, a botched experimental execution. Alabama wanted to kill a man by making him breathe nitrogen based on a film, except officials didn't know how to. He writes, I began my work against the death penalty in the United States in 1981. It would be reasonable to suppose that by now, four decades on, I would have seen it all, but not so. On September 22nd, Alabama lost a round in a ghoulish battle to execute Alan Miller. Initially, they promised a federal judge that they were ready to experiment with a novel method. Nitrogen hypoxia. 
essentially suffocating him by replacing oxygen in the air with pure nitrogen. The state then had to backtrack, saying they were not sure they knew how to do it. And so they would kill him by lethal injection. In one of those midnight battles with which I am achingly familiar, the Supreme Court voted five to four to let the Alabama executioners go ahead with their ritual sacrifice. But by then, it was too late for their probing needles to find a vein, so Miller is safe for a short while. Though doubtless Alabama will set another date soon, in one sense, his close and temporary escape is a metaphor for everything that is wrong with the death penalty. The inspiration for dabbling with nitrogen hypoxia as a new, kinder, gentler method of execution is bizarrely from a television program, which was recorded several years ago by Michael Portillo, Fortal, Fortal, it could also be Portillo, former shadow counselor for Britain's Conservative Party in the 1980s, then a member of parliament. Portillo voted to reestablish the death penalty in the United Kingdom, but he was unsuccessful. Then a member of parliament, Portillo, voted to reintroduce capital punishment to the United Kingdom. The bill was defeated. His hardware for executions faded as he learned how many innocent men and women had been sentenced to die. When the subject came up again in the 1990s, he switched his vote. The UK never mustered a majority to step backwards to rejoin the execution governments. Meanwhile, in 2008, Portillo made a BBC documentary titled How to Kill a Human Being, focused on making any executions as humane as possible. For his film, he toured around the U.S. considering and rejecting accepted execution methods, each of which he found barbaric. There was the electric chair. Jesse Tafaro had a strong claim of innocence. His co-defendant, Sonny Jacobs, was later freed and now lives in Ireland. Tafaro's head caught fire when Florida electrocuted him in 1990. Portillo illustrated this in his documentary by running 2,400 volts through a dead pig. Um, The gas chamber proved no better. The Mississippi Department of Corrections used Zyklon B for their executions. They allowed a BBC crew to film them testing this out on a bunny rabbit, which died in agony. They were preparing to kill Clive's black American client, Edward Earl Johnson. And he says, we sued on the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz to put an end to this barbarism. Next, the proponent, the proponents of the lethal injection three drug cocktail claimed it was a more civilized way to kill someone. It was advertised as nothing more than the kind of anesthetic applied every day in thousands of hospitals. Yet, if there is one rule, it is that the history of executions is full of false promises. They were ignoring an obvious problem. The Hippocratic Oath forbids medical professionals from doing harm. The task of inserting the needle was delegated to technicians who had little skill. Hence, even Dr. J. Chapman, who invented the three-drug cocktail, decreed botched executions carried out by incompetent people who could not find a vein. Yikes. By the way, the three drugs are a sedative, a paralytic, and a poison. 
Why the paralytic? Because it prevents the witnesses from seeing the victim thrash in pain when the sedative fails. Sometimes the paralytic agent failed as well and the victim thrashed around in pain. All of this became increasingly problematic when the drug companies announced that they did not want their life-saving medicines used to kill people. Clive continues, in short, none of these methods satisfied Portillo. They were not, he said, humane. Thus far, I can agree with him. Having watched six of my own clients die in front of me, two executed by each system. Therefore, Pertillo took his quest to an experimental laboratory run by the Dutch Air Force, where they were studying the hypoxia caused by high-altitude flying. They uh, experimented on Portillo himself. He breathed in pure nitrogen. He described a kind of euphoria as he gradually lost consciousness. All in all, it was a kind way to kill someone, he concluded, as reflected by the calm response of laboratory mice to their euthanasia. It does not take my 40 years of experience in this dark world to see what nonsense Portillo's claim was. Experimental mice have no idea that an omnipotent and vengeful government is planning to kill them. A human being, his euphoria replaced by panic, would tear at the gas mask and howl in terror. And we would have to adopt another protocol to protect witnesses from the horror of it of it all. Yet it is the extraordinary progenesis of this new form of execution that is most shocking. Surely an American government should not elect to execute its citizens based on a television program. All of this is sadly fairly typical of capital punishment, where those without capital get the punishment. Perhaps none of this matters to some people. Portillo interviewed New York University law professor Robert Blecker wary and wiry outside of prison. As Portillo outlined his proposal for a supposedly humane method of execution, Blecker exhibited a rising disgust. Punishment is supposed to be painful, he said. The idea of a killer dying easily would be the opposite of justice. Blecker must be a very superior person to feel comfortable wishing agony on people whom he's never met and knows very little. I wonder, regardless, since 1947, the Nuremberg Code has stated that no human experimental should be conducted where there is reason to believe that death or disabling injury will occur. So perhaps we should accept that our grotesque human experiments should be left in centuries past where they belong. Thus it was that this week we found ourselves on the cusp of conducting a human experiment on Miller, who was convicted for shooting three people a senseless tragedy of nature that takes place far too often in the U.S. He grew up in extreme poverty and a house overrun by rodents. The family money was spent on his father's drug habit. He was represented at trial by a court-appointed lawyer who made it clear to the jury that he did not want the job. All of this is sadly fairly typical of capital punishment, where those without capital get the punishment. Again, that was from Clive Stafford Smith, a human rights lawyer and director of the UK charity 3DC, 3DC.org UK. Also, in September of this year, Pope Francis devoted the worldwide prayer to ending capital punishment. 
The Pope issued a renewed call to all people of of goodwill to mobilize for the abolition of the death penalty throughout the world. In a video announcing his monthly prayer intention, the pontiff said, Capital punishment offers no justice to victims, but rather encourages revenge, and it prevents any possibility of undoing a possible miscarriage of justice. Pope Francis has been a strong advocate for ending capital punishment, revising the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 2018 to call the death penalty an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person and deeming it inadmissible in all cases. He revisited those themes in the prayer initiative, saying the death penalty is morally inadmissible for it destroys the most important gift we have received, life. Society can ensure public safety without definitively depriving the offenders of the possibility of redeeming themselves, the Pope said, making capital punishment unnecessary as a legal tool. Always in every legal sentence, there must be a window of hope. Let us not forget that up to the very last moment, a person can convert and change, he said. Each day there is a growing no to the death penalty around the world. Uh, The Pope said, describing that as a sign of hope for the church, let us pray. He said that the death penalty, which attacks the dignity of the human person, may be legally abolished in every country. All right. Going back a little further in time over the summer, while the Supreme Court was busy dismantling human rights, they also handed down a peculiar death penalty decision from Politico. The ruling in Nance vs. Ward initially looks like a highly technical decision. Um, an inmate in Georgia who feared the pain of lethal injection wanted to be executed by firing squad instead, and the court agreed to let his request proceed, reasoning on the very narrow grounds of how inmates can file appeals rather than anything about the substance of his execution. But as Fordham Law Professor Deborah Deno told Law 360, the court's ruling keeps alive a narrow legal avenue for challenging methods of execution and giving some rare, quote, breathing room to death row inmates who wish to litigate what is about to happen to them. The question the court decided in the Nance case was whether methods of execution challenges only can be brought to federal courts in one particular form as habeas corpus petitions, and if so, whether such challenges would constitute so-called successive petitions that are now barred under federal law. Federal law imposes a one-year deadline for filing federal habeas corpus petitions and requires that people seeking such relief must bring all claims in a single action. Because states can change their execution methods and protocols frequently, even altering them right before a particular execution, inmates are not in a position to challenge those methods within the tight time horizon of federal habeas corpus. The frequency which lethal injection executions are botched led Michael Nance, like other death row inmates before him, to seek another method to be put to death. He suffers from medical conditions that have compromised his veins. As a result, the Georgia execution team would have to cut his neck to establish an intravenous execution line. He also alleged that his longtime use of a palliative drug for back pain would diminish the effect of the sedative used in Georgia's drug cocktail. Nance claims that under such conditions, the lethal injection would be torturous and violate the Eighth Amendment prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Instead of 
lethal injection, he wants to be executed by a firing squad. While the firing squad is authorized in other states, including South Carolina, which announced in March that it is now ready to carry it out, it is not now available in Georgia. Unlike several other death penalty states that use more than one execution method, Georgia law specifies that death sentences can only be carried out by lethal injection. The cruelty of Nance's situation is almost unimaginable. Litigating in the hope that the courts will allow you to choose from the way you will die from among several gruesome methods of execution is so grim. Going back to September 2022 from deathpenaltyinfo.org, a new study of the Texas death penalty released as the state was conducting its 400th modern era execution in a case involving a white victim has documented overwhelming racial disparities in the Lone Star State's capital punishment system. Reviewing more than 15,000 capital murder convictions in Texas from 1973 to 2018, University of Detroit Mercy School of Law Dean Jelani Jefferson, Exum, and University of Cincinnati School of Public and International Affairs Associate Professor Dr. David Niven found a stark disparity in those whose lives mattered in the capital punishment cases of in Texas. The Texas death penalty data shows how pervasive race is in death penalty outcomes. Outcomes. Exum and Navin write in their Summer 22 article where Black Lives Matter Less. Understanding the impact of Black victims on sentencing outcomes in Texas capital murder cases from 1973 to 2018 in the St. Louis University Law Journal. Race, they say, is everywhere. Exum and Niven found that a death sentence was more than three times as likely to be imposed in Texas in a case involving a white victim than in a case with a black victim, while 5.2% of Texas's 15,394 capital murder convictions resulted in death sentences. Death was imposed in 8.5% of white victim cases compared with 2.7% of black victim cases. Taken in some, they wrote, we see a race of victim disparity in death sentences overall. A race of victim disparity in death sentences sorted by a race of defendant. A race of victim disparity in death sentences sorted by weapon use. A race of victim disparity in cases with a single victim and a race of victim disparity in multiple victim cases. In every single comparison, the racial disparity was statistically significant in every single comparison. In every single comparison, harsher punishment was associated with white victims than with African-American victims who clearly mattered less. As the Texas example provides, the devaluing effect of blackness is apparent. This is not simply a failure to recognize the value of black lives as the Black Lives Matter movement exposes, but a reflection of societal view that blackness actually reduces the value and importance of all things, from property to community spaces to ultimate humanity. In life, black people are vastly underprotected by the law, and the same is true for black people even in a system designed to exact retribution for death. History shows us that blackness has been devalued since the founding of America, Exum and Niven wrote. The truth, of course, is that black victims matter as much as any, even if the legal system and society have not recognized their value. Their proposed response, 
We must make the radical choice to uproot systems like the death penalty that allow the anti-black biases in our national consciousness to not only thrive, but to be just. To do otherwise is to perpetuate a system where black lives matter less. When we accept the fact that the death penalty reveals that black deaths do not matter, they conclude, then it becomes apparent that there is not an anti-racist fix for the death penalty other than its abolition. A fucking men. I personally couldn't agree more. Also from deathpenaltyinfo.org, some Florida death penalty news. In May 2022, Florida has joined the growing number of states that have ended automatic permanent solitary confinement for prisoners sentenced to death. The Florida Department of Corrections agreed to the action as part of a settlement of a federal civil rights lawsuit brought by eight prisoners who alleged that the state's death row conditions were extreme, debilitating, and inhumane, violating the contemporary standards of decency and pose an unreasonable risk of serious harm to the health and safety. U.S. District Court Judge Marsha Morales Howard approved the settlement in late April 2022 to eliminate permanent solitary confinement for death row prisoners and to improve death row conditions in the state. Florida death row prisoners had for more than 40 years spent almost every day and 24-hour day solitary confinement in concrete rooms the size of a parking space with no windows. They had severely limited access to exercise, phone calls, and other human interaction, including with other prisoners and staff. The settlement allows the prisoners to spend up to 20 hours a week in a day room where they can meet with others, watch television, and have access to Department of Corrections multimedia kiosks. They will also have more access to phones to call loved ones, increased shower access, and will be granted six hours a week of outside activity, which is up from three hours with a new sunshade. Florida is just the latest in a series of states who have significantly changed or altered their death row conditions in recent in recent years in response to prisoner lawsuits. Since 2017, five other states have ended automatic prolonged solitary confinement for their death rows. Arizona, Louisiana, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, and Virginia. Another state, Oklahoma, has not ended its practice of keeping death row prisoners in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day, but has implemented some other changes, including eliminating incarceration in windowless cells, permitting contact visitation, and providing some opportunity for outside recreation. A brief filed in February 2022 by a group of former prisoner directors, they challenged to the constitutionality of uh, long-term solitary confinement, argues that the practice can cause severe psychological and physical harm and is costly, ineffective form of punishment that does not advance penological goals to improve prison security. They write that the severe isolation increases prison violence and disorder serves no interest in providing in preventing incarcerated people from escaping and inhibits rehabilitation. The Texas death row prisoner behind that challenge, Dennis Hope, wrote to his lawyers that challenging the use of solitary confinement has given me a purpose and goal and helped me maintain a degree of my sanity in an otherwise insane environment. Having sat back here and watched men commit suicide, mutilate themselves, try to overdose on pills and slowly lose their minds, he told his lawyers. I said to myself that I was going to try to make a positive change in the way we are housed and treat it if it was the last thing I did. 
While rehabilitation has never been the goal of capital punishment, a death penalty information center review of more than 9,700 death sentences imposed in the United States between 1972 and the end of 2020 found that the most likely outcome of a capital case once a death sentence has been imposed is that the defendant's conviction or death sentence will be overturned and the prisoner will not be resentenced to death. Death row exonerees face significant challenges to reentry into society that are exacerbated by the psychological damage caused by as a result of the conditions in which they had been confined on death row. The conditions of confinement also adversely affect the ability of former death row prisoners to integrate into the general prison population. Okay, this next update is about a woman who we discussed in a previous episode. I had the privilege of meeting with one of the prosecutors from her capital murder trial a couple of years ago now. I will never forget those crime scene photos and the incredibly, incredibly morbid birth announcements that Lisa sent out after committing the brutal murder and fetus abduction. Lisa Montgomery, the only woman on federal death row, died by lethal injection early in the morning of January 13, 2021. The execution came after the Supreme Court vacated several lower court rulings, clearing the way for her to become the first female prisoner to be put to death by the U.S. government since 1953. Until Montgomery's death, it had been nearly 70 years since a woman on federal death row had been executed. The execution followed an intense 11th-hour court battle over Montgomery's fate. U.S. District Judge Patrick Hanlon in Indiana granted a stay of execution, citing the need to determine whether she was too mentally ill to be executed. An appellate court in Chicago reversed that decision, paving the way for the execution to go forward. But in a separate ruling, an appeals court in Washington, D.C. blocked the execution to give time for hearings on whether the Department of Justice had given sufficient notice of Montgomery's execution date. The Department of Justice challenged that ruling. A whiplash of legal challenges and decisions continued throughout the day until the Supreme Court's midnight ruling allowed the Federal Bureau of Prisons to proceed with the plan to end Montgomery's life by lethal injection. Montgomery's lawyers had also filed a clemency petition asking then commander in buffoonery Trump to commute her sentence to life in prison, but to no avail. In preparation, authorities had transferred Montgomery from the federal women's prison in Texas, where she had been held for more than a decade to the Indiana facility. The family of Bobby Joe Stinnett, the woman Lisa Montgomery murdered, had traveled there as well to witness Montgomery's death. Henry, Montgomery's attorney, said throughout the legal proceedings that no one was excusing Montgomery's actions, but that her troubled life provided the context for the crime. She said her client had brain damage and severe mental illnesses. That was exacerbated by a lifetime of abuse, including child sex trafficking, gang rape, and physical abuse, largely at the hands of family members. She said the Constitution forbids the execution of a person who is unable to rationally understand her execution. Henry said in a statement shortly after the Supreme Court issued its final order, the government stopped at nothing in its zeal to kill this damaged and delusional woman, the attorney said. Montgomery's execution is one of three that the just Justice Department had scheduled during that final full week of the Trump administration. Two others were halted by a federal judge. Anyway. 
transitioning to palate cleansers. There are more death penalty updates that I would like to get to, but for time, I will save those for next episode. So time to cleanse our palates with stories that are not true crime related, but honestly, some of them should be a crime. I've been laughing about these for days and weeks because, well, let's just get into it. So at this point, the first group of stories could be old news by now because I'm pretty sure the phenomenon started at the end of the summer, but I can't get them out of my head. A tomato spill makes a major California highway a marinara mess. <laughs> From the Times. After truck spills on highway, Alfredo sauce is everywhere. This comes from NPR's strange news section. Some California drivers got a saucy surprise in their Monday morning commute after a truck hit the center divider on Interstate 80 between San Francisco and Sacramento, California, slathering several lanes in quickly crushed tomatoes. Sacramento's KTVU-TV News reported that the accident, which happened around 5 a.m. local time near Vacaville, caused... Heavy traffic, but no injuries. It took several hours for State Department of Transportation workers to clear and reopen all lanes of the highway, according to the California Highway Patrol. The mess teed up some food humor, at least for those not caught in the tomato traffic jam. Get the chips. Oh, wait, you are already there. One internet commenter wrote referencing the nickname for the CHP's officers. Not sure that commenter was worthy of being quoted, but thank you for this piece. Christopher Dean Hawkins from NPR. That was beautiful. I love when journalists lean into the silliness of a story. So that was August 30th and then boom, this happened. An overturned truck in Memphis covered the road in Alfredo sauce. It reportedly smelled great at first. Wow. What happened that week that pissed God off so much? Because if only these happened in closer proximity of time and space, something delicious could have happened. Um, Same story, but this next headline is from The Guardian. Not a great recipe. Truckload of Alfredo sauce bakes in sun after highway spill. Oh, gross. No. Ew, that detail. Cheese-based sauce covers half of a busy road in Tennessee days after a truck spilled 150,000 tomatoes on California interstate. Damn, there were 150,000 tomatoes on that truck. Just a day after a truck spilled a gigantic load of tomatoes over a highway in California, another bizarre food spill unfolded in Tennessee where an enormous slick of creamy Alfredo pasta sauce was accidentally deposited all over a busy road. Love how they wrote that. The accident occurred when a 18-wheeler truck carrying hundreds of bottles of the cheese-based sauce crashed and spilled them all over I-55 leading to one half of the road being covered in what looked like from a distance snow, but was, in fact, the popular pasta-enhancing condiment. Crews worked through dust to clear the sauce using cleaning equipment, not breadsticks, of course, NBC reported. Har, 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 har. Less amusingly for local residents, at least, the baking hot summer sun did not treat the exposed mass of Alfredo sauce kindly. In short, it rapidly started to go off. Unfortunately, this is Memphis, and we had some pretty intense sun beating down on that Alfredo sauce and also humidity. Oh, gross. A local Fox journalist told the New York Times, it was just not a great recipe for a highway full of Alfredo sauce. 
On Reddit, where both stories went viral, one user remarked, have the pasta sauce companies launched a war? Is there a pesto attack looming? Amazing. Please support The Guardian. You can donate on their website. They're giving us all this for free. Anyways, that wasn't even the last highway spill story. Truck collision turns a Florida highway into a silver sea of beer cans. Back at NPR Strange News, a Florida highway... Why didn't this happen in my part of Florida? Anyway, highway had to temporarily close after a semi-trailer carrying cases of Coors Light crashed and turned the roadway into a silver sea of beer cans. The multi-vehicle crash... Oh, shit. Occurred shortly after 6 a.m. Okay, I would have taken that as a very welcoming sign to say, fuck this shit, I'm going back home. So this was 30 miles north or 48 kilometers for, our, you know, European metric people. North of Tampa, the Florida Highway Patrol said in a news release, the pileup began when one semi-trailer clipped another while changing lanes, officials said. That forced other semis to break, but one failed to stop and collided with a pickup truck and another one of the uh, stopping semis. The semi that failed to stop was filled with cases of beer. Wow. Uh, moving on from food spills, these next stories I can only assume were recommended by Google because of the recent encounter with a camera that outed me as Bigfoot at ObsessFest. An Oklahoma state lawmaker introduced a bill for Bigfoot hunting season. The bill would require uh, hunting licenses and comes with a $25,000 reward for capture. Glad I've never felt the need to go to Oklahoma. No offense, Oklahoma. This is just about safety and possible Bigfoot mistaken identity. The legislation is meant to increase tourism. According to the Bigfoot Research Organization, there have been 106 Bigfoot sightings in Oklahoma. That's right. The Bigfoot Research Organization. In Pennsylvania, someone was putting up Bigfoot warning signs at state parks. The posters advise park goers to show etiquette and to be cautious. There have been enough posters plastered around and even social media posts about them that the DCNR has been forced to respond. These signs were not posted by DCNR. Agency spokesperson Wesley Robinson wrote in a statement to the Inquirer. He added, Bigfoot is not real. Oh, he's fucking canceled. With a tongue-in-cheek disclaimer saying that is his opinion and not an official statement. Still canceled. So the signs read, Warning. Due to encounters in the area of a creature resembling Bigfoot, we are instructing all park observers or park visitors to observe elevated park etiquette, be cautious of your surroundings, and to keep the location of any small children or pets within a tighter scope of awareness. Yeah, I think we just need to do that always. Anyways, it also says, do not approach the creature. Report any sightings to a ranger front office or to the DCNR office of missing persons. Amazing. Um, well, that is, that's all I've got. So, as always, thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, and if you are going to leave a review, just remember that if you have anything negative to say, reevaluate your life choices because you're really taking time out of your day to, like, criticize something that truly does not impact you in any way. Like, just change to a different show. It's not for you. Thanks. Um, but for the people who say lovely things, they're so greatly appreciated and they help support the show and help us to get more listeners. 
We are on Instagram. Everything will be in the show notes. Happy Halloween. Thank you for listening again. This has been Marielle reporting for duty. Thank you.